The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Luke. Glory Glory to you, Lord Christ. Christ. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to you, Lord Christ. Good morning, everyone. Welcome. It's a delight to have you as always. Let me pray for us. Father, I do pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable to you through Christ your Son. For we pray in his name. Amen. So, the second sermon in a series entitled All Saints Envisioned to Witness and to Bless. What we're doing is taking a couple of months this fall to rearticulate the identity and vision of our church. And we're using Jesus's parables in the gospel of Luke. And as I said last week, the parables that we've chosen are both descriptive and representative of us, but also aspirational for us. They're what we more fully want to become. And our parable today, it's a fairly well-known one, is the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And it starts off sounding kind of like a bar joke. Two men go into the temple to pray. So two men walk into a bar, the third one ducks, or E flat walk, the the first service didn't get this, E flat walks into a bar and the bartender says, we don't serve minors. And then also a horse walks into a bar and the bartender asks, thank you, why the long face? This is not a joke, but this parable can bring joy. It can bring true joy and it can transform entire cultures cultures of a church, the culture of a marriage, the the culture of your marriage, of your family, of your office, of your friendships. And so that's the question that I want us to ask this morning, which is what type of culture does the gospel create? And so two points this morning, the problem and the prayers. First of all, the problem. A simple way to discover the main concern of any biblical passage is to look for repeated words, especially if those repeated words come at the beginning of the passage and the end of the passage, which is exactly what we have here. It's not very obvious in English, but the word righteous there in verse nine, you see that? And then the word justified in verse 14 are the same word in Greek. One is a adjective, the other a verb, but it's the same root word. And it helps us understand what it means to be justified, which is a massive biblical theological concept. To be justified means to be declared righteous. And that's the problem of the pastors, the problem of righteousness, which we need to be honest about. Righteousness isn't all that pressing of a concern for us today. It's hardly even a word that we use. Most people, when they hear the word righteous, what do they think? Self-righteousness, exactly. So righteousness isn't all that relevant. It doesn't necessarily drive us, or at least we don't think that it does. Righteousness in the Old Testament and the New alike has to do with being approved. That's more relevant to us, being approved, being accepted, 
passing scrutiny, being seen, wanted, remembered, being welcomed. That's the idea behind righteousness. And this is a book that I read probably 15 years or so ago, and it's got some great cover art. And if you can't see it, maybe you should sit closer. But also, it has on it a Great Dane, two dogs, a Great Dane, and then a little chihuahua. And the title of the book is Status Anxiety. It's written by a man named Alain de Baton. Why could my name not be Alain de Baton instead of freaking Schmidt? It doesn't have the same ring, but <laughs> Alain de Baton says this. He says, status is one's position in society, one's values in the eyes of the world. Status anxiety is a worry so pernicious as to be capable of ruining extended stretches of our lives. A worry that we are in danger of failing to conform to the ideals of success laid down by our society and that we may as a result be stripped of all dignity and all respect. A worry that we are currently occupying too modest a rung or are about to fall to a lower one. Our self-conception is so dependent upon what others make of us that we rely on signs of respect from the world to feel tolerable about ourselves. You feel tolerable about yourself this morning. Uh, what if what Elaine de Baton means when he speaks about status is what the Bible means when it speaks about righteousness? Same word or same reality, just different words. What if a form of righteousness was what was really behind the college admission scandals from a few years ago? Do you remember that? One man paid $1.5 million for his two daughters to each get a spot, one in Harvard and one in Stanford, as athletes in a sport that they didn't even play. Now, those of us who have been through the college admission scandal, we know that he wasn't paying for education. What was he paying for? He's paying for one word from one email because after all, the e after all the studying, all the tutors, all the applications, all the essays, it comes down to one word in one email, which is accepted. That's what he was paying for. Not for his girls, for him. And what about marriage? Why do we celebrate weddings so extravagantly? Do we celebrate love and romance at weddings? We don't throw a big party when a guy gets into the backseat of a car with a girl and says, I love you for now. We don't celebrate that in any way. So what do we celebrate? We celebrate two people willing to love one another enough to make a lifelong promise. That's why we celebrate. We celebrate the vows. It's why everyone cries at the vows because it's a verdict from someone else, from outside of us saying, yes, I see you. I remember you. You are approved by me. I want you. I will commit my entire life to you. It is a type of justification. It is a status, it's an approval, and we'll do anything for it. Spend millions of dollars to get our kids into college using a lie, or even thousands of dollars to celebrate a vow. What if the righteousness that we so desperately want from the world, everything that Elaine de Baton speaks about, what if it's actually a misdirected need? What if on a deeper level, the status, the approval, the acceptance that our souls know that they need deeply and desperately seek and everything else is really a righteousness with God. In other words, what if that group of friends that you so desperately want to hear from come in, welcome in to our group, to our inner circle? What if really you want to hear that and you need to hear that from God? Or what if everyone does, most everyone does want to get married so that they can hear that I do from that boy or from that girl? What if what if it's really from God that you want to hear that? Or what if those of you who've been through divorce know what it's like 
to have that person who did say, I do, then go back on their promise. And it feels like you can hardly breathe without being overwhelmed by anger and anxiety and sadness. What if it's not ultimately that person that you're really longing for? Because the same could be true of of anything, of a job, of a sport, of grades, of a child, of your children, of your physical body. Because there are all sorts of little approvals, little verdicts that we live for, little statuses. We not only live for, we live from one to the next, to the next, to the next. But what if we were ultimately made for one big verdict, one singular status or singular righteousness that would put everything else in the right perspective and order them, put them in their place and make them good, but not necessary. Good, but not ultimate. Nice, but not necessary. Life-giving to a certain degree, but not soul-crushing when we don't get them. Because the way that the Bible tells our story is that is exactly what we had. That we had a righteousness with God. We were created with it. According to Genesis 1 and 2, we were made in his image without sin and fully and completely approved. And do you know how we lived? Do you know what the phrases that the Bible uses to describe how we lived in those moments? Naked and without shame. Do you live naked without shame? Without any fear of embarrassment, failure, rejection, though you're fully seen, though you're fully and completely known? Without a worry so pernicious as to be capable of running entire stretches of our life? Because with sin, we lost that. We lost God's approval. And we all know that there is very real unworthiness about us, which we hide. And that's why we're so insatiably hungry for any and all approval or status or righteousness from the world that we can get our hands on. And we'll do anything to get it. That's the problem of righteousness. Point two, the prayers. There are two prayers in response to the problem here. So this is the pastor trick. It's really two points in one, just full disclosure here. Two prayers in response to the problem. And each is an approach to God. The temple was the primary dwelling place of God on the earth at this time, and each men are coming to God seeking a verdict, seeking a verdict of acceptance here. And first, the Pharisee, in verse 11, it says, by himself. You see that? And if you were to go to different Bibles, different translations translate this differently. Some say by himself, some say talking about himself, some say talking to himself. And that's because the preposition here is intentionally ambiguous, and each in some way are true, because he definitely stands by himself. Contrasted with the tax collector who stands far off, this guy gets up close as, as possible, as far to the front as he can get. And his prayer is also certainly about himself. Speaking about repeated words, what's the most often repeated word in this parable? What word? I, five times, all in this prayer. And, and what does he ask God for in this prayer? Hmm? Trick question. He asks him for nothing. And why? Because he apparently needs nothing from God. He seems to have everything he needs in and of himself. And what is a God, if not the one we ask to give us what we need for life? And this man asks nothing from God because he needs nothing from God. He's functionally become his own God. And so he prays to himself. He's not talking to God. He's not praying to God. And God's not listening because he's not praying to God. What I want you to see here is how sin and obedience or vice and virtue for this man get entirely externalized. Everything is focused here on what? On rule keeping, on outward behavior. He says, I don't do this. 
or I don't do this. I do this, or I do that. There's nothing about the heart here. There's nothing internal. He never speaks about character. He never says, in other words, I'm becoming a less angry person, or I'm becoming more gentle. I'm becoming more kind or less lustful. None of that. He says, I don't steal. I don't cheat. I don't sleep around. And it's a very, not only naive view of sin, but actually quite dangerous. Because as I often tell you, sin is what? It is a power. Breaking God-given rules is just how you know that sin is present and active within you. But sin is more like Voldemort in the Harry Potter series. Kids, this is for you. I, I, see, I see the bright, shining faces looking up. This is for you. We can't have a series about rearticulating the, the identity of all saints without a little Harry Potter. So Voldemort in the Harry Potter series is very much like sin. And what does Voldemort need in order to exist in the world? He needs a host. And so he moves inside as an alien force to determine how people from the inside will behave on the outside. Remember book one, Professor Correll? I'm about to run the book. So if you haven't read it, close your ears. You've had 23 years to read it. So you've had your chance. But where is Voldemort in book one? He's inside and a part of Quirrell. He's under the turban, attached to his head. He's in and a part of him. That is like sin. This Pharisee thinks that he can avoid sin by, break, by not breaking the rules because he doesn't think that it's in him. And friends, we can keep all the right rules and still sin. We can keep all the right rules and still sin. Our hearts can remain very wrong and twisted and self-obsessed by sin, even in the midst of outward behavior. How many of you know angry, unkind, impatient, resentful, bitter, but obedient, rule-keeping people? How many of you know people like that? I've met plenty. Guess where I've met most of them? At church. At church. This is a church guy. He is why Paul had to so famously write 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, if everything that I say and do on the outside is beautiful and wonderful, but I have not love on the inside, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. What does Paul speak about? Internal, external. Internal. He speaks about character, not rule keeping. Friends, you can keep all the rules, but be ruled by sin. You can keep all the rules, but still be ruled by sin. That is this Pharisee. And what does it lead him to do? What's the one thing he does in this parable? He moves away. He moves away from, from everyone, especially those in most obvious need. The tax collector is in obvious need here. He's utterly falling apart and falling apart, unwinding at church. His eyes are down, probably weeping. He's beating his breast, which is an inappropriate public expression of remorse in that society that men never did. They considered it far too undignified for men to beat their breast in public. That was something that only women did. And he's also standing far away all by himself, clearly hurting, clearly in need. And what does our Pharisee do? He moves as far away from this man as possible with zero empathy whatsoever. And why? Because if you have an externalized view of sin, you will have a separatist view of other people. If sin is just simply individual external actions only, then it can be avoided. You can avoid it. You can avoid it by just keeping all the rules. And you can especially avoid those people in those places that don't keep the rule by just avoiding them. 
So if sin is out there, just stay away. Stay away from sinners. And what's the problem with that? Well, there are lots of problems with that, but here's one. And that is, very simply, that's not how God has dealt with us. The scandal of Jesus in the gospel of Luke is that Jesus is near and with sinners and tax collectors. And like I told you last week, that, those were, that was a technical term for the, the most morally reprobate and shunned people in that society. And Jesus is with them far more than he is with the Pharisees. He's with them. Do you know why we take the, the Bible and walk it up into the midst of the congregation each and every week at the gospel reading? You know why? It's not just because I like ceremonial and liturgical things. I do, full disclosure, but that's not why we do it. We do it in order that we might demonstrate to you that in Jesus, God has come close. He has come as close as possible. He has taken on flesh and dwelt among us and moved right up in the midst of all of our business, all of our life, all of our sin, faults, failures, everything. It's so that week after week, when you find yourself like this man in church, this symbol of Jesus moves right up next to you so that you can believe he's not only come close in history, he still comes close even now. And he knows you and he loves you and he's near you and working in and around you, regardless of what's going on in your life now or ever, regardless, he still draws near. And then hopefully you will be moved to pray like this tax collector prays. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Now, our translation is actually wrong, I think. It says a sinner. For some reason, the translators left off the definite pronoun, but in the Greek, it's there. Maybe they didn't want to confuse people and make us think that he was saying, I'm the worst of sinners. He's not saying that. But what he is saying is that what anybody else has done doesn't matter. What matters between me and God right now is who I am and what I have done, and even more importantly, who God is and what he has done. Friends, what has God done for this tax collector? What has he done for us? Well, this, this word that this tax collector uses tells us he asks for mercy. You see that? Be merciful to me, the sinner. Uh, it's not the usual word for mercy. It's not, the more common word is elias, and this word is, is an unusual word. It's this word helaskamai. Uh, and that's the verb form. It's more common as a noun. In fact, in the temple where this man actually prays, there was a piece of furniture called the hilasterion. Same word. And it was in the Holy of Holies. And you may know that the Holy of Holies was the most center place within the temple. And, and nobody went in there except the high priest and only once a year. And he would walk in and he'd have a rope tied around his leg so that if he had any unconfessed sin or the nation had any unconfessed sin and God struck him down there, they could pull him out without going in after him. In the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant, within which was the Ten Commandments, the law of God, which scrutinized and ultimately condemned Pharisees and tax collectors alike. And one day a year, on the day of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, the high priest would go in with a bowl full of blood, and he would walk up to the Ark of the Covenant. And over the Ark of the Covenant was this golden slab of furniture called the Hilasterion, or the mercy seat in English. And he would take that bowl full of blood, and he would pour it out all over that piece of furniture covering him, coming in between him and the law of God, which scrutinized and only condemned him and pour it out as a sign that God's law had been satisfied and the penalty had been paid. That's what this guy asked for. That's what he asked for here. He asked for a sacrifice to pay the penalty and the cost for his sin. And he goes home justified, declared righteous. And hear me this morning, we have a better sacrifice than the one that he even asked for. 
I told you last week, there's only two ways that a debt can be paid. One is that the one who owes pays the debt. The other is that the one who is owed absorbs the cost. Jesus was sacrificed at the, at the cross in order to absorb the cost. He became the sinner. He became the sinner for you, for me, for us. And at his death, he demonstrates that only he, as God in the flesh, is righteous. And here's the grace upon grace. And that is, he not only died to forgive us, he was raised to share his status with us. Because what did God the Father say of Jesus at his baptism? Do you remember? What did he say? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That's his status. That is his justification. That is his righteousness. And that is what he shares with everyone who believes in him and is baptized into his name. We're baptized into his status. And please hear me. That's the one big declaration you've been living your life for. That's the declaration you've been wanting to hear. And you have it. You have it if you are in Christ. You have everything that you've been looking for. And since you have it, all those smaller, lesser ones that I mentioned earlier, all of them, they, whether it's from friends or from your boss or job or marriage or kids or success, whatever it means, all of the approval, all of the status, they can become nice but not necessary. They can become good but not ultimate. They can become life-giving to a certain degree and in a certain way but not soul-crushing if you don't have them. This is the good news of the gospel. And it creates a very unique culture. What type of culture does it create? One that is the opposite of how the Pharisee treats the tax collector. And what's the one word that describes how he treats him? Contempt. It says, Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. There's an unavoidable connection there. Everything in the Pharisee's list, everything's biblical. Do you realize that? Everything's biblical. Robbery, cheating, stealing, adultery, all in the Bible. All wrong, just for the record, all there. Also tithing in the Bible as well. You know what's not in the Bible? Fasting twice a week. Fasting's a good thing. It's a great aid to prayer. It's a great way to focus your prayers for a period of time. It's one of our 10 spiritual formation practices, but nowhere in the Old Testament or the New Testament does it say fast this many times a week. In the Old Testament, they fasted one day a year on the Day of Atonement. He fasts twice a week and he slips it in there. You see that? He slips it in with all the other biblical directions. He slips it in. And fasting is an all may, none must, some should sort of a thing. He makes it the thing. The thing that separates those approved from those who are unapproved. And friends, for us as Christians and at this church, that one thing is Jesus and him and him alone. Nothing else to be added in. And so what is your thing? What is your thing that you sneak in? They sneak in there and add to Jesus. And by which you, you say explicitly or at least feel when you look at others, they have that approved. They don't have that not approved. Politics or wealth or the level of responsibility or success that they've had in life, their beauty, their education, their socioeconomic status, their race, what is it? And do you treat them with contempt? Do you treat your spouse with contempt? Your kids, your neighbors, your enemies, whomever. If you want to look for that one thing that might be that you slip in there, look for the people that you treat with contempt and find out what you have that they don't. And if you're not a Christian, what is, what is that thing that if you just gain it, you feel like my life will finally be set? 
It'll finally be set and I'll feel approved. And with people that don't have it, do you look on them with contempt? Because we all have to, and we all do. Because if there's something other than Jesus that becomes our justification, we have to disdain and look down upon those that don't have it in order to maintain the importance of our thing. And we'll never become people who move towards others who are different than us. We'll always be separatists. In fact, entire cultures, entire church cultures, entire communities, entire families, entire friend groups or schools, anything can become separatists. But the gospel of Jesus, that he alone is our righteousness, it is a shared righteousness, not a self-righteousness, a shared righteousness that belongs to him alone, received by us. That alone can create a culture the opposite of contempt and separation. In fact, it creates a culture much like Paul describes in Romans chapter five. Did you notice it or did you pay attention as Edith read? You should have, her accent is amazing. It helps you pay attention. But Paul speaks about a culture of peace. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God and therefore can have peace with others. A culture of suffering and rejoicing in the midst of suffering because all of those approvals that you thought that you have to have, you don't have to have. And you can rejoice despite not having them. A culture of inner transformation and depth of character. People animated from the inside out by the Holy Spirit, not driven by external rules and the demand to keep them and a culture that moves towards others in love, especially those that we find in desperate and obvious need. And this capital campaign that we're in the midst of right now at All Saints is really more about that than anything else. We're seeking to raise 7.5, a little bit more, $7.7 million, and about 4.4 million of that is to pay off debt, which will free up, free up about $375,000 a year in our general fund. And what will we do with that extra money? What will we do with it? We will move toward others with it. We'll plant churches or increased giving to missions or we'll create new ministries or, or partnerships for mercy ministry or we'll have an increased engagement with our immigrant Hispanic friends and neighbors who live down the street and who are just beginning to be a part of our church or we'll start new support groups and recovery groups similar to the ones that we already have our infertility group our substance abuse recovery or our sexual addiction group or our women's mental health group we have those we need more because they're hurting people in our midst and they need help so friends the gospel of Jesus moves us toward the, the hurting world with the good news that his approval and his acceptance is available and waiting to be received in Christ so trust in Jesus, trust that he is your righteousness and move towards others. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray this morning that you would teach us, that you would show us, you would demonstrate to us what it is for us to move toward others the way that you have moved towards us in and through your son, by your spirit. We pray that you would pour out your, spe your spirit, that we might be people, even as we have read in your word today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.